What a song, huh? Claire, thank you. That's been one of the privileges and joys of this camp meeting is getting to sit down and talk to people for a while. Some of our breakfasts have gone an hour, I think, haven't they, Aaron? <laughs> and I think lunch today. How long did you? How long were you all there today, Elder? <laughs> I left and came back an hour later, and you're still there. So that's that's the nice thing about camp meeting, isn't it? It's just good to be together. And I hope that after we have finished our sermon and what we're going to see from God's Word tonight, that that song that Claire sang is what we're going to be saying. How great thou art. Now, the weekend's coming. Do I need a suit? No? Good, I didn't bring one. They they told me not to, so I'm just trusting that, you, you know, that... Were you the one that sent me the You know, I just hope... Not you, okay. I don't want to get in trouble with anybody up here. You all been so gracious to me, and I don't want anybody getting upset with me. But it has been a joy to be here, and just so that we're all on the same page. The university where I teach, and tonight, I have a colleague here with me. Dr. Tom Bunch sitting over here. Tom, I think most of these folks know you already. And his wife, Linda, that are here. And so, uh, and today when we were talking, I turn around and here's, here's four more people from Keene. Uh, you know, people will come up with any excuse to get out of that 106 degree weather. You know that? <laughs> sure enough, here they were. I, I'm sure they're heading to Sacramento, but they were up here today too. But at the university where I teach, Southwestern Adventist University in Texas, When we started this series on Monday night, I shared with you that we opened a time capsule uh, in 1991 from our university. And in that time capsule was a letter written in 1939 by the president then to the president that would open the box. And one of the paragraphs in that letter is that we that are here today still firmly believe in the three angels' message. And that has gotten me thinking, and that's probably what has brought on this series. Because we're going to open a time capsule again tonight. Probably the first book written in the New Testament. The book of 1 Thessalonians. Now we've been taking some things out of that time capsule every night. And what we have noticed from the very beginning, and I'm doing a little review because I know there's some folks here tonight for the first time. But if you take 1 Thessalonians and you look at the last verse of each chapter, the last verse of each chapter ends in the second coming of Jesus. Regardless of what they talk about, what Paul writes about, it always ends in the second coming. That's because these folks are Adventists, right? Adventists are people who look at the issues of life through the lens of the second coming of Jesus. I'm glad the sign is out there, but that does not make us an Adventist, does it? I'm glad to belong to a movement that believes Jesus is coming again, but that affects every aspect of our lives. And as we've been opening this letter, we've been looking at this time capsule. And every night we've been pulling something else out that these Adventists, Paul's writing to them, And the first thing we pulled out of that time capsule was what? A boot. Because Paul says that this letter is written to the saints in Thessalonica and in Christ. 
And we saw from Steps to Christ, page 101, that Ellen White writes that we should live as Christ lived his life, between the mountain and the what? Multitude. There's a constant path in the Christian life between the mountain and the multitude. In your life and in your church, if that gets out of balance, we do not give that picture that God wants us to give as Adventists. We have to have both. The mountain where I come in contact with my God and find my source of strength and power and purpose and my local church where I live for Jesus where I live. It's where my prayer list generates from, doesn't it? Family and church, those two have to go together. First night was the boot. Second night, we pulled what out of the family album? Yes, we pulled out of the time capsule a family album, a book. The second chapter of First Thessalonians, there's contention. Uh, there's criticism of Paul and his ministry. And I'm sure it hurt. Some of you have had people criticize what you do. <laughs> and it hurts. And in that chapter, Paul says, he calls them brothers. We ministered to you like nursing mothers. We were like a father among you. And finally, he says, I was really orphaned from you. Family pictures. And we realize that when things happen in the body of Christ, we have to be able to trust each other, right? Because brothers and sisters don't treat each other that way. And Adventists should be people that cherish the fact that they belong to the body of Christ. And that should affect how we treat each other. That was chapter 2. And then last night, chapter 4, what did we pull out of the time capsule? The bandages. Where Paul talked about how we live our lives in order to please God. And then he got real personal because he talked about the intimate life. And it is there that we found that Paul is telling these Adventists that Adventists should live different than the rest of the world. That they should live a life pleasing to God. And how we treat each other, especially in our marriage relationships, what an opportunity to make a statement to the world. And God has placed us where we are. We can make a difference. There's hurting there. We saw that last night. And we can be that bandage. God can use us in homes. Tonight, now, by the way, you all have done real well on this quiz. I'm very impressed. <laughs> but tonight, I want to pull another item out of this time capsule. And uh, we've had the boot and the book. We've had the bandage. This time, it's a ball. Now, it's not a basketball. It's not a football. I mean, it's not a tennis ball. And it's not a baseball. You see, those are round. You drop them, they come back to you, right? Pretty predictable. But the ball I want you to think about this evening for a few moments is a football. Because it's, it's, it's shaped differently, isn't it? it? It can take some funny bounces. You can throw it down, it can go any direction. You see it happen all the time on the field. You know, it, it doesn't always bounce right back up to you. And the reason why I want to pull that out tonight is because life is unpredictable. And that's what Paul wants us to see. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 
beginning in verse 13. And I want you to notice something as we begin tonight our study. That 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13, butts up against 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. And you all know that 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 13, is talking about the state of the dead. But I don't think it's coincidence that Paul butts right up together the state of the dead with the state of the living. Because the state of the dead should affect the state of the living. Do you believe that? And you see these two right together. And I think they're there for a reason. And I want you to see that this evening. That what you believe about the state of the dead affects what you believe about the state of the living. Now, I know there's a seminar going on here at camp meeting about what happens when a person dies. It is extremely important. I know tonight you're saying, now, wait a minute, pastor, I know you got a tent, I know you got a Bible. You're not out here preaching evangelistic sermon. Yes, I am. Right here. I think that what we teach is not just something we teach to others. We need to live ourselves, don't we? And that the state of the dead and what we believe about what happens when people die has a tremendous effect on what we believe about how we live our Christian lives. I think, for example, of those who have a very bitter attitude towards life. And are mad at the world. In 1995, down next to where I come from, a fellow by the name of Timothy McVeigh destroyed half of a city block. The Alfred P. Murrow building. If you ever have a chance, and some of you maybe have been there, it's an incredible thing to see what has happened there. But at that site, this Oklahoma City bombing, 168 people lost their lives. 19 of them were children. And when Timothy McVeigh was brought to trial and finally was executed on June 11, 2001, he had final words that he wanted read. That he wanted people to hear. These are his final words. And I want you to listen to them, if you would. He wanted a poem read, a poem by William Hurley, a, 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 an English poet. The poem is entitled Invictus. It means unconquerable. I want you to listen to this and see if you don't see a fist in the face of God. Listen to what he says. Out of the night that covers me, black as a pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstances, I have not winced or cried aloud. And under the bludgeoning of chance, my head is bloodied, but it is not bowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. Here's the last chapter, the last stanza. It matters not how straight the gate or how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Last words of a dying man. Clenched fist 
in the face of 169 people who lost their lives and their family. 19 children. How that man believed about life affected his death, didn't it? Shaken a fist at God. Now you say that's the extreme. But Paul realizes that what a person thinks about death will affect their life. You remember what Solomon said? You know, when he wrote that Middle Age book, Ecclesiastes. You, you ever read through that book? You know, you, <laughs> you read through Ecclesiastes and you keep hearing that phrase, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Have you seen that? Uh, meaninglessness. That's how the book begins. Those are the opening words. He uses the phrase over and over again, chasing after the wind. Eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we die. Walking through a cemetery, I saw an epithet that said, Where you stand, I once was, and where I lie, you one day will be. (laughs) It's just the inevitability of life and of death. And in the first century... When Paul's writing this letter to the church of Thessalonica, you can read inscriptions from the first century of what people thought of death. You see, the pagan view of death was one of horror. It was the end of everything. Death was a tyrant. No one escaped. And one theme that comes comes through again and again in these early inscriptions, life is not fair. And I want to suggest to you that that part is true. Do you believe that? Life is not fair. If life was fair, do you know if it was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, we'd all be blind and eating baby food. You know that, don't you? Yeah. If we got what we deserved, we would be in serious trouble. Life is not fair. But I don't want you to pick anything up and throw it at me because I'm going to make this statement. God's not fair. He is holy. He is honest. He is just. He is good. He is righteous. He is long-suffering. But I thank God that He's not fair. I need a God that's not fair in a world that's not fair. Don't you? And that's what Paul's dealing with here in this book. It's not just that these folks have questions about death. Everyone does. But I want us to see this evening that part of their question is this. They misunderstood. They thought if they became a Christian and lived right, that they'd be alive when Jesus came. They had this little picture of what life would be like. And Paul's writing to them. Because life is not fair. And I would like for you to open your Bibles with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. <clears throat> I think maybe if there are any Adventists here tonight, we need to know how to look at life when it's not fair. Would you notice what he says? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. Or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. 
Did you hear what Paul said? There's some misunderstanding. He said, I, I don't want you to be ignorant. Evidently, there are those who thought that if they lived their life a certain way, they would be guaranteed an assured outcome of what they expected. It's been interesting the past few years working with hospice. Uh, not only a cancer patient, I, I've probably done 15 funerals over the past five or six years of people that I've been involved with in cancer. And uh, some of the, the folks that has been the hardest, and listen carefully to me, are people who have done everything right. They've eaten right, they lived right, they've done everything right, and things go wrong. Did you see the front of Time magazine here just a couple weeks ago? Dr. Oz on the front cover. Did some of you see that? Do you know who Dr. Oz is? He's the one that Oprah launched. You know that doctor? He's sort of America's doctor. And he, he preaches this, this gospel of good health. And not only does he preach it, he lives it. He exercises. He does everything he tells his audience to do. And so at the age of 50, just turned 50, he said he had to have a colonoscopy. That's what he was telling people to do at 50. So he said he went to do it. And guess what? They found polyps. Not just once, but had him come back in again and found more. And in the cover of that magazine, it is just, you, you have this doctor with this blank look on his face. Just absolutely blank. And you've got some doctors standing there with stethoscopes. And I read the article. You know what he said? He said, I, I realize something now. That by exercising and eating right and doing the things I should, it puts me in a category where I have a lower chance of certain things happening to me. But then he said something. I realize there's no guarantees. Have you ever noticed that? Have you realized that? You see, that, that it's just a startle awakening. I, I thought I was doing everything right, and now things go wrong. That's who Paul is writing to here. And I, the reason I know that, I want you to notice what he says. I don't want you to be ignorant. And neither do I want you to grieve. I want to suggest to you, you can only have grief when you have love. Grief comes because of loss of someone you love. And evidently that's what's happened here. These are people they love. That they've lost. They don't understand. Paul says, please, I don't want you to be ignorant. Listen, Christians grieve. Are you with me? Christians grieve. But I love this. Not like those who have no hope. You see, that's the other category. Those are the folks that, that just sort of live their life for now. They have no hope beyond the grave. Eat, drink, and be merry, Solomon said. For tomorrow we die. And Paul is writing to that group where things have not gone the way they have planned. And I love what he has to say here. Would you notice verse 14? I want to suggest to you that this is one of the first fundamental beliefs in Scripture because it begins with what two words? We believe. Yes. 
In Scripture, this is a fundamental belief. Listen to what he says. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who've fallen asleep in Him. Do you know why death is called a sleep? Do you know why? You see, the Bible says Jesus died. It does not say Jesus slept. And the death Jesus died was not the first death. He did die the first death. But he died more than that. People continue. The book of Hebrews said it's appointed down to everyone to die. And then comes the judgment, right? But Jesus didn't just die the first death. He died the what? Second death. That's the eternal separation from the Father. And that's the death. When Jesus died that death, he turned my death into a sleep. Amen? Let me tell you something. Cemeteries are simply dormitories for the dead, for the believers. Amen? That's where we rest. It's the most valuable piece of property, I think. And I know there's some here in Tom. and the, I know probably, I think, as many people in the cemetery in Keene now as I know in the city. You know that. You've lived there 40-some years. What a glorious place that's going to be, isn't it? When Jesus comes. Jesus' death turned my death into a sleep. He died that second death for me. You see, we try to explain why the first one happens. And I don't have any explanation sometimes. You don't either. And Paul doesn't give one. But let me tell you something. I am so glad that I believe what the Bible believes about we sleep. Aren't you glad you believe that? That we sleep? Uh, I had the privilege a number of years ago of going back and working on a graduate degree. And I looked at, so I'd, I'd finished my, uh, my master's at Andrews and been down that road. And, and there was a seminary not far from us, only about 20 miles and I checked them out, and I, I was very impressed. They had a very high opinion of Scripture. They were not Seventh-day Adventists, but there were seminaries in the area I did not want to go to. So I went to the largest seminary in the world, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. 5,000 students in the graduate program. This is not undergrad. And uh, it's interesting. I've, I was a little nervous, you know. Went to a Seventh-day Adventist college and went to a Seventh-day Adventist seminary and here I'm going to be rubbing shoulders with these people, you know, that have come from all over the world. Let me tell you something. After being there a short time, and, and I'm not the brightest person to come down the pike. I have to, I mean, I work hard for what I get, you know. Some of you, it comes very easy. I'm envious of you. I have to study, okay. I have to study. But I want to tell you something. I could have gone back and kissed those professors at Andrews University. You know that? They prepared me well for what I needed to do. I was so thankful for the education we offer in our church. You believe that? I was so thankful for what they had taught me. But these classes were only about five and six students in the class. The doctoral level classes are small. You have a professor and usually everybody's given topics and you write and you critique. That, that's how you go through these classes. And we were in a class on the themes of Paul. And we're sitting in that class and... These gentlemen are presenting papers, and the professor's there, and they came to the topic of death. 
And so they're talking, you know, for me to live as Christ and die as gain and depart and go to heaven. And I'm sitting there, you know. And one of the gentlemen, I got to know some of these fellows real well. I really appreciated them. One of the young men that was in that class pastored a church of several thousand young men. And they're talking this theme, and finally he said, uh, he said, I've got to say something. He said, this year has been a very traumatic year for me and my family. He said, you know, I lost a, a sister. And he said, and uh, it's been very hard on us. And I have a, another parent who has cancer. And then he made this statement. He said, my father died quite a while back. And he said, I've got to confess something to you. That tonight, if my father is in heaven looking down at everything that's happening to us on this earth. He said, that can't be heaven. It has to be hell. You know, I'm sitting there. I mean, it's just quiet in the room. And I could see that this was not a person trying to start an argument. This was a soul searching in his own heart. And you know what came to my mind? It was great controversy. I'm reading back through that again. Now, wait a minute. We give this out to a lot of people and tell them to read it. Have you read it lately? Yeah, we, we need to be reading this book. You know that. There is a chapter in here called, and I love this, Can Our Dead, not Can the Dead, Can Our Dead Speak to Us? The ones we love when they die. You know what she says here in talking about this idea of people who believe that when you die you go to heaven? Listen to what she said. If the dead are admitted to the presence of God and holy angels and privileged with knowledge far exceeding what they uh, had possessed before, they should not return to the earth, should they not, to enlighten and instruct the living? Are you listening to what this says? That if you really believe that the, those who have died have gone to heaven, and they're there, and they can watch and see us here, it's only natural to believe. If there are loved ones, they're going to want to communicate with us. Do you see where this is going? And I'm sitting there in his class, and I'm, and I'm thinking of that quote. And then out of the blue, Kent, this pastor, turns to me. And he said, Bill, I know you don't believe any of this, do you? <laughs> I'm sitting in his class. And then he said this. I'd like to know what you believe. And, uh, you know, this is not my class. Uh, uh, Dr. Bernard is the instructor. And I looked at Dr. Bernard, and he said... Uh, Go ahead. And so among those five and six men and one who's just really struggling with this, I asked them, let's look at some of these verses. And of course, rich man and Lazarus, you know. And we talked about the point of a parable. You know, you've got to know the point of a parable, right? Yes. If they believe not Moses, if they believe not uh, 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 Moses and the prophets, how would they believe someone who did what? Come back from the dead. That's the point of that parable. And then we went to this verse, chapter 4, verse 14. Did you see what it says? We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who what? Fall asleep in Him. And they're saying, see, Jesus is going to bring with Him those that have fallen asleep. But I simply asked my brethren, in the context of this chapter, 
Which way is the movement going? Is it Jesus coming with those that are asleep from heaven? Or does the Lord descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, and what? The dead in Christ. And what I realize is this, and they saw it too. Jesus is the agency that can raise the dead and take them to the Father. The, the direction is this way, not this way. He has come back to get His redeemed and take them back to the Father. And I realized something sitting there with these gentlemen. That there's a lot of folks who have a lot of questions about what happens to them when they die. And it is important as us, uh, for us as Seventh-day Adventists to be willing to share what we know from the Word of God. Not in arrogance, but be willing to share with them. This is not a debate. This is a soul-searching question. And do you know what I realize here? Nowhere in this passage does Paul address the reasons why the people we love die. He doesn't. I want to suggest to you that we make fools of ourselves sometimes when we try to answer the why questions on some of these things. I don't know why things happen sometimes in this world. Are you with me on that? I really don't. But let me tell you this. I know the what and the when and the where of how God's going to handle it, right? And that's what he's telling these folks in Thessalonica. He's turning to them now and he's saying, The Lord himself shall return with the voice of the archangel, the trump of God. Do you see this? A return. He wants them to know that if you are an Adventist and believe that Jesus is coming back, that the state of the dead affects the state of the living. That we believe in a return. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, voice of the archangels, trump of God. And what happens? Dead in Christ, right? There is a resurrection. There's a return and there's a resurrection. But that's not all. Dead in Christ shall rise first and then we which are alive and remain shall be what? Caught up. I tell you what the third R is. It's return. It's resurrection. It's rapture. I believe in a rapture. I have to. It's biblical. The Greek word is arpazo. It's the word that's used in Matthew. Caught up. It, that was not secret. This is the noisiest text in the Bible, isn't it? It's not secret. Caught up, it says. And I love the next one. You see, not only is there a return and a resurrection and a rapture, there's a reunion. Huh? You see, that's what they needed to know. Not answering why their loved ones have died, and we all struggle with that, but to know that God has a plan to bring us together as a family again. Amen? Do we believe that? Is the second coming of Jesus enough? Do we really believe that Jesus will bring those alive who were once dead. I want to suggest to you that what you believe about the dead affects how you live your life. I was on a mission trip in spring, and Tom and Linda were with us last year. 
These folks fed about 40 people every day. I mean, you, you need them over here at camp meeting them too. I mean, these folks, and they have great food here. Uh, but these folks, they fed our crew every day. And at the end of the week, we'd been there 10 days, and all we had left over was a little box about this big. I mean, they had everything down, and I appreciated that. We were on the Navajo Indian Reservation, Fort Defiance, Arizona. We've been going there for several years, and now I've got several academies. Some folks get a little nervous about kids going overseas wanting to do something more, and there's plenty of needs. And I've been, in the past 26 years, I've probably been on 22 mission trips. Most of them have been overseas and all over the place. But the past four or five years, we've been focusing on the Navajo mission. We were there in March. We've helped to build a, 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 a community center right in just the, the, the tough part of town where we're able to do uh, after-school tutoring, uh, we did a little basketball clinic to draw the kids and then had them come in and do some crafts and Bible story. You know how that works. And, th- I mean, this is a place where it- it's tough to do evangelism. And we always are trying to understand the folks there better. And I, I appreciate Dr. Butler who takes us on these trips. Um, he did one of his graduate degrees there on the reservation. He is a, a police officer as well as a, a teacher. And uh, he brings in groups so the students can try to understand that culture a little better. So one night he brought in the dancers the, uh, to do the uh, Indian dances. And it's quite spectacular. Uh, you know, the word powwow, I've heard that all my life. But I didn't realize that for the Navajo Indians, this is a serious word. Because they're trying to capture their younger generation. They're losing them. Have you ever heard that phrase before? They're losing their younger generation, so they want them to know the traditions. These powwows are everywhere, and it's really geared towards these young kids, understanding and, and being a part of this tradition. So we had them come, and they did the, the, their dances. They got us up doing some of the things with them. And, but at the end, um, I didn't realize, but the gentleman who was leading them was also a medicine man. And uh, he started talking to the students a little bit afterwards about some people called the skinwalkers. These were departed spirits that could inhabit animals. And their eyes turned red, you know. Now, I've got a group of 50 kids, <laughs> you know, in a, in a quite dark building out on a reservation. And, and this person is talking about in their culture there are these skinwalkers. Oh, man. I mean, we, we finally finished and everybody went back to their, their places, the girls where they're staying, the guy... The next morning, I mean, the next morning, the staff came together and said, whoa, what a night we had. We were scared to death. <laughs> Kids were just, you know, they kept thought and they saw these red eyes looking inside the windows and things like that. But let me tell you something. What a teaching moment. At breakfast that moment, that morning, you know what I told them? That in the Seventh-day Adventist church, we used to have 27 fundamental beliefs. We don't now. We have how many? 28. We added a new one, number 14. It wasn't 28 as a new one. 14 is the new one. And it's about walking in the Spirit. Do you know why we have number 14? Because the world church requested it. That in many parts in this world, when someone comes to Christ and learns about Him, there are these spirits, spirit worships that they've had in their lives that they can't get rid of. 
And they become Christians and still afraid to walk by a cemetery. Still believes that dead, departed spirits come back to haunt them. And we write in the 28 fundamental beliefs that there's no greater spirit than the spirit of God. Amen? That exists because we need it today. And we think we're so civilized. You've never looked in a newspaper and seen what movies the kids are going to, have you? Huh? I want to tell you something. If you reject what the Word of God says about life and death, then you're very vulnerable to accept what anybody else teaches you. You know that? We live in a culture that says this is reality, and they call this book a myth. Are you with me? That this, you know what I'm doing? Yeah, yeah. That that, they call it reality TV, right? And that's a myth. I want to suggest that if you want to know how to be a man or a woman, you will find it here, not here. Are you with me? If you want to know what it means to be a husband or a wife, it's here, not here. This is the authority. And I want you to see something. Paul, with these folks, chides them a little bit. He tells them the Lord's going to descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel. Trump of God, the dead in Christ, we're caught up. Reunion, so shall we ever be with the Lord. And then chapter 5. Would you notice chapter 5? And we're not going to go much longer. But I want you to notice something in chapter 5. Verse 1. Now, brothers, about times and dates, we don't need to write to. Now, you can interpret this any way you want to. But remember, Paul said that he was like a, a father to them. Your father ever said to you, now, son, we've been over this before, right? That's, that's sort of what I'm hearing coming in here right now. Life's not been fair. And they've had questions about that. And he's been trying to answer that, that Jesus has a solution when he comes. And we need to believe that because that affects how we live our lives. And I have to ask you, is the coming of Jesus enough? Hmm? You know what he says about the coming of Jesus? To those who, who don't know him, he comes like a thief, right? But you know him, so it's not as a thief. And then he says something else about the coming of Jesus. It's like a woman in labor. It's inevitable. On the way to the hospital, ladies, as much as you'd like to, you can't say, Oh, no, I'm not doing this. Well, no, I, no, you don't have much choice here, do you? No, it's inevitable. It's going to happen. And that's what he's telling this church. That in the face of life being unfair, that we as Christians know that God has a solution. That he's coming again. And we're not children of darkness. We're children of light. We're going to pick up that shield of faith, that helmet of salvation. Amen? And I want you to notice what he says. Look with me. Look at these verses in chapter 5. He says this, beginning in uh, verse 8. But since we belong to the day, and since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at this next verse. He died for us so that whether we are awake, 
Are you with me? We're going about what we're doing now. Or whether we are what? Asleep. We may be joined together with him. And he says, therefore, encourage one another, build each other up, just as in fact you're doing. Do you know any folks that are mad at the world because of the unfairness of life and things that have happened to them? God needs some Adventists who believe that the coming of Jesus is a reality. And that God, these are not just Bible texts that we debate with other people. I'd finished seminary, gone to my first district, Morgantown, West Virginia. And uh, in this church, you get acquainted and you meet everybody. And I had a, a young boy in that church who was 17 years old. I had a lady in my church. She was such a grandmotherly type lady. I just loved her. And when this little boy of 17 was two years old and at West Virginia University Hospital, a medical hospital, this little boy had been left there because they thought he was going to die. He had some real serious diseases. But this lady in the church, and she did this long before I came, she would go to that hospital every day and go to that nursery and hold these little babies. That, that was just her mission. She was just in there, just loving on these kids. And after about another year or so, this little baby's still alive. And she asked the hospital, I would like to adopt this little baby. Now, she was probably in her late 50s at that time. And she's wanted to adopt this little And she did. Took him home first as a uh, uh, foster care and eventually adopted Kevin. And when I got there, Kevin was about 15. And let me tell you, I, I, I did this little thing. Where we were talking about having morning devotions. And I told the members, I said, if you like, I'll come to your home and we'll do morning devotions for a week in your home. You set the time. I'll bring some resources and things. I just wanted members to start doing morning devotions. So I go there to have devotions, getting ready to have it. And here comes Sister Rutledge carrying this tray of food. Going up to his bedroom. Breakfast in bed, huh? <laughs> I mean, she just loved and pampered this boy to death. And that's why he was still alive at 15. And going to high school, they'd made him the water boy at the local high school. He couldn't play ball. He was sick. In and out of the hospital, but he would just downplay it. One of the few times at Western University was going to the Final Four, my conference president called me and said, Hey, uh, maybe you ought to have a deacon's meeting that night, and maybe we could go with you to this game. Can you get tickets? <laughs> you know, when your president tells you, you know, you got it. So <laughs> he was quite a basketball fan, so I did. I got tickets. And uh, Kevin had gone into the hospital. He always was going into the hospital for something, it seems like. And I had stopped up the hospital that day, and I said, Kevin, guess what? You're going to be listening to the game on the radio. I'm going to be there. And he's going, no, I yeah, got tickets. I'm going to be there. And, and we talked, and then before I left, of course, I prayed with him. And I'm at the game, and we just, you know, rah, 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 had all the things that we did. Came home later that night, and I pulled up in my driveway, and I could see this note taped to the door. And I got out of my car and walked up to the door. And the note simply said, Kevin died. Come to the hospital. My wife was already there. She had gone up. and All the way over the hospital, I'm not thinking about Kevin. I'm thinking about Sister Rutledge. She loved this boy. It was her life. It was her life. 
So I went upstairs to the waiting room, and sure enough, I walk in, and there's Leslie, and she's with Mrs. Rutledge, and Mrs. Rutledge is crying. And then she says to me, I want to go in and see Kevin. I said, I don't know if that's a good idea right now, because whatever he had coded, and some of you that are medical people know, they just clip these tubes off. You know, they're going to do an autopsy, and it, it can look pretty brutal. They've crushed ribs and done all kinds of things. He says, i got to see him. So I talked to the nurse, and the nurse said, we'll do this. And so they, she said, just give us a little bit of time. And so sure enough, she came out and said, let's go in. So I went in with Mrs. Rutledge, and there's Kevin, tubes and all this kind of stuff. And I watched this sister walk over to this boy and kiss her hand and kiss his forehead and say, and the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. The voice of the archangel, the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And I realized something. I knew that as a verse for a text on a test. She believed it. She believed it. Guess what happened? I'm crying. She's helping me out to the way. Pastor, it'll be okay. Come on. You know, she's taking me out to the way. She believed it. I just have to ask you tonight. Is the second coming of Jesus enough? Not just when things are going well, but when they're not going as well. Do you still believe that the coming of Jesus is enough? Can I take one more minute? I, I know we're, I'm pointing to, to the boss over here. He was up here earlier. But there's an interesting verse. And I just want you to look at it for just a second. 2 Thessalonians. We've not ventured in there, but 2 Thessalonians Chapter 2. You see, the reason why there's a 2 Thessalonians is all the problems didn't go away in 1 Thessalonians. You ever notice that in life? You pray about some things, they don't go away. And I want you to notice how realistic Paul is. Would you look in verse 6? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. is about six months later he writes this. This is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Let me get that straight. Let me get it straight. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6. Listen to what it says. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. Notice this. And give... What's your next word? Relief. Comfort. Do you know you already know what that Greek word is? That Greek word right there is anison. Anison. You see, in Greek, to anison a bow, like a bow and arrow, was to relieve the stress and the tension. Some of you in here are old enough to remember those anison commercials. Remember relieving tension? Yeah, it's just right out of the Bible. Right out of Greek. That's what anison means. To relieve tension. I want you to notice something. Notice what it says. Everything has not worked out right. I'm not saying that we become doormats. But there's some things that in this life we may not be able to change. But is the coming of Jesus enough? Listen to what it says. And give relief to those who are troubled. And to us as well. And this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed when? From heaven. In blazing fire. And with His powerful angels. You know, I've asked you before, are there any Adventists in here? And tonight it gets a little tougher.
Because am I willing to believe that even though I may not have the why question answered, that I really do believe by the authority of God's Word, I know the how and when and where God's going to make everything right. Is that enough tonight? Can you, can you leave this place even with the things still going on in our families and back home? Can I leave this place tonight as an Adventist? Believing that Jesus is coming again. And the same God who raised the dead will raise my spirits and give me the strength to live for Him where I live. Amen? Amen. Give me your hands tonight. How many Adventists are here? Any of oh, praise God. Amen? We're going to do this, what we've been doing every evening. We're going to pray. I'm going to ask you, would you just stand with me? And Then after we pray, there may be some folks here tonight that just would like to pray a little longer. And I really appreciate the folks that have to close things down. Reminds me of the dormitory. They flick lights a little. But that's a <laughs> I appreciate them being patient with us. There may be some folks here tonight that want to pray about some things. Let's do that this evening. Let's just spend some time in prayer. Some of you may need to move on, and I understand that. Be back with us tomorrow night. But I'm just so thankful this evening for the Word of God, aren't you? And for what it has to say to us, those of us living in this world, just before Jesus comes. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you tonight that we heard your voice, not mine. This is your authority. These are your promises. I ask for a miracle to take place. This is hard. It's hard in my life that I would not only know these promises, but I would believe them. And when things don't turn out the way I maybe would like them to, I would still know that I serve a God who's going to descend from heaven with a shout. The voice of the archangels and the trump of God and the dead in Christ are going to rise first. And we which are alive remain will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Lord, may that be enough to help me to live for you where I live. And Lord, if there's some things that I can change, and I pray that you would open my heart and the hearts of those here. But if there's things that can't, I just pray that we live for you where we live with this hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for being here this evening. Come and join us tomorrow night. If some of you want to spend some time in prayer, let's do that now.